Amen. I went out walking through streets paved with gold. Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you. I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, this is Heart of the Matter from Salt Lake City, Utah. If you want to watch the show, uh, and have friends or family who want to watch the show, have them go to www.bornagainmormon.com, click on the TV shows, and they can watch it streaming video from anywhere in the world. We have some great in-house guests tonight, a very, again, very handsome audiences lately. We have the Jeds, Jed and Jed. We have York, we have Reed, Nancy, Dave, Micah, Noah, Brian, and Julie. So we welcome them. And we welcome all of you who are tuning in tonight. It should be a very uh, good show. Shout-outs to Wayne R. Thank you, my brother. To Roy Wild in Western Australia, who watches all the shows via streaming video. Good day to you, whatever. <laughs> to Dinah. To Elizabeth in Provo. A double shout-out to Sh uh, Sharon. Hang in there with Jesus, Sharon. To the inmates at Davis County Jail. We had the privilege last week of uh, going to, or I had the privilege last week of going to uh, Christ Evangelical Church in uh, Orem. They meet at UVSC. That's Pastor Scott McKinney's church. It's an excellent church in the uh, Happy Valley area. And I was, had the privilege of baptizing Tom and Desiree in a uh, horse trough outside. They televised it for their congregation. And that's just a great place. So a shout out to Tom and Desiree and all the congregates at Christ Evangelical. Pastor Scott, you're doing something. The Lord is truly uh, making a work happen down there in that part of the vineyard. To the Sorensen family I met out there. To Ben Anderson, wood delivery man extraordinaire. To Dixie, hang tough and seek the Lord, Dixie. He will bring you through all this. To Ken and Eileen for an excellent book and some great, fantastic information. To my friend Greg Dixon, to Annette, it was nice to have met you. Forrest N., Jack H., and all those who support this ministry, thank you and God bless. Finally, I want to support a film that I saw the other day, which is absolutely inspiring. And it's a documentary called In the Shadow of the Moon. And uh, run, don't walk to see this exceptional and inspiring piece of film about the Apollo space program and the moon. All right, I have some announcements. Uh, first and foremost, if you are a woman and you're looking for a Bible study from somebody here on KTMW, check out Precepts for Life with K. Arthur Monday through Friday at 8.30 a.m. It's supposed to be an excellent program. She's supposed to be fantastic at teaching the Bible. And if you want to take some time out for yourself and study the Word with K. Arthur, then we welcome you to do it. 
Uh, the owners of the station have requested that I make this announcement. Revival! Revival! Miracle Rock Church at 131 North, 900 West in Salt Lake City. It presents a three-day miracle revival service. Theme, the visitation of the Lord. Guest speaker, Pastor Joe Nwakawi from Nigeria, Scotland, UK. Friday, October 5th, 6th, and 7th from 6.30 p.m. each night. It says, come expecting supernatural salvation. Normal salvation's not enough. And deliverance and healing. It's a time for your divine inspiration. So I do that on behalf of the owners of the station who attend Miracle Rock Church. Pastor in the Oven, this coming Monday, October 8th, at the Brick Oven Restaurant in Provo, Utah, right off the campus of BYU, from 6 p.m. to 8.30 p.m., all are invited. Come and eat, drink, and enjoy some time fellowshipping and asking and answering questions. Heck, we may even have a BYU student or two show up to ask questions. Maybe someone from the J. Reuben Clark School of Law will show up to pose their questions. Mormon manipulation. What does it mean to be a Christian? Believing in Jesus does not necessarily make a person Christian because even the devils believe and call him by his name. Doing good works of Jesus does not necessarily qualify you as a Christian because there are many people and organizations that do plenty of good works who have nothing and want nothing to do with Jesus. Even recognizing Jesus as, to one degree or another, as a great man or a prophet or from God doesn't even make you a Christian because you can look at Islam and a, an assortment of other religions who note his greatness, but they cannot by any stretch of the imagination be considered Christian. So what is it that legitimately defines a person or a group as Christian? I would like to say that it is those who follow the Bible, who follow the biblical presentation of the good news, who follow the biblical idea of salvation. Now, we have an article here, and you can't see it, but this man right here, his name is Bob Millett. And Bob Millett, he wrote a book a few years ago, and this, this article was in the Salt Lake Tribune, which I got, and it says, Christ in common at the top. And then down here, it says, Leading LDS scholar discusses connections and divergences with fellow Christians. We're fellow Christians now. And, and it says here, here that a different Jesus, the, church, the Christ of the Latter-day Saints, assures non-Mormons that, yes, they're fellow Christians. And it goes on and says, Millet's work discusses other Mormon teachings that dispute beliefs mainstream Christianity draws from the Bible. Quote, man is not a lower order or different species than God, Millet states. Smith taught that God has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man and was once a man. Millet says Mormonism hasn't received authoritative explanation about God's life before Godhood. On Jesus Christ, the article says, Mormonism teaches that he was the, quote, firstborn spirit child of God the Father, who over eons grew in light and truth and knowledge and power until he became like unto God. It goes on to say, Mormons also hold that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
are not unified divine trinity of traditional Christianity, but, quote, three separate gods. And then it says, in Millet's opinion, such Latter-day revelations provide, quote, clarification or additional information to the Bible, but doesn't invalidate what went before. It says, Millet writes, supplementation is not the same as contradiction. That's Orwellian doublespeak if I've ever heard it. Supplementation is not the same as contradiction. So what it's saying is the LDS can say, we believe the Bible, but let us supplement this with a bunch of information that has not been known before. And they can tell us that, that God wears a pink wig and supplementation does not mean contradiction in Millet's opinion. That's our little corner of more manipulation today here on Heart of the Matter. Listen, if you have been an inactive, aren't sure if you believe or not, haven't been to church in ages, Mormon, we started a service just for you. And, of course, everyone is invited to Lord's Word, but we, we kind of designed this especially for people who have left Mormonism and have said, I want nothing to do with organized religion, or have left Mormonism by virtue of inactivity and just said, I don't know where else to go. I'm too afraid of everything else. We don't want people doing all kinds of weird things around us. So we designed a service that I think you would enjoy. And we call it Lord's Word. And we want you to come and check it out. It's on every Sunday morning from 9.15 to 10.15 at the Gateway Theaters. Every Sunday morning. And then we also hold another similar service on Sunday evenings at the University of Utah at the Francis Madsen Building on the University of Utah campus, you can go to our website at www.lordsword.org and you can get directions, maps, anything you want about those services. All are welcome. We would love to see you there. So with that, let's have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the station, the ability to talk about these important issues here uh, in Utah. We pray, uh, and Idaho, and Lord, we pray that your spirit will be with our operators, our volunteers, and with the people who are out watching. Help me to say the things you want me to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So what, people will say to me. So what if Mormons build temples and go inside of them and do all kinds of sacred or secret things that you don't care about or like? Who cares? What difference does it make? Tonight, I hope to conclude our shows on an historical look at temples. Three weeks ago or four weeks ago, we talked about the temples of Israel. Then we talked about Masonic temples. Last week, we talked about how temples started in Mormonism and then where they kind of ended up today. Tonight, I hope to show you why I speak out against Mormonism. Not Mormons, against Mormonism and the way the church uses temples. Most of the information I'll refer to comes from principles I've learned from authors like Eric Hoffer, Tom Gilovich, Eric Fromm, and a book called The God That Failed. But let me start off with words that come straight from the mouth of God. Listen to them carefully because he said them for a reason. Quote, Take heed that no man deceive you. That's what he said. Now, I don't mind if you think I am out to deceive you. 
with the information I give. It's natural and normal for you if you have been LDS to not believe a word I'm saying. You've been trained not to believe the things I'm saying. So I don't blame you for that. But I would challenge you to go and let's take any of the words any man has given you and test them and challenge them and research them and see exactly how they play out when it comes to truth. I'd like you to imagine for a moment that there is a giant arena that holds 5,000 people. And they're all gathered there for a symphony or a concert or some type of sporting event. Now for a brief two or three hour period, most of those people can get along. And they'll just go and sit there and they'll enjoy the reason they came. There could be an argument over seating or, or concessions or, or something. There could even be a fist fight in that group depending on the venue. But in all probability, those 5,000 people in that arena would just sit there autonomously, independently, watch the event, and then move along. Now let's suppose for some odd reason that at the conclusion of the event, a lid was put on that arena, and all the doors and all the windows were sealed off for a 10-year period of time. Now, for argument's sake, let's say that plenty of food and water, places to sleep, hygiene facilities were all there, and, and they were prepared. But everybody is locked in that arena for a solid 10 years. It wouldn't take long for the occupants of that arena to begin to divide, separate, and group up together. Some of them will unite as their family groups if they're there with their family. Others will gather based on gender, male and female. Some will gather based on sexual attraction with each other. Women's and men's group will form. Children's will gather and roam and play together. And people will form tight and loose-knit groups based on their intellect and their personality and their education and their interests and all those things. Race and culture will play a big part and a big role in these gatherings. This is normal and reasonable for human beings. We typically gravitate towards those things that are most like us, and so race and culture will play a part. Before long, most people will begin to embrace some sort of an us versus them mentality. It's us and it's them, okay? Clubs and groups and cliques will segregate in the arena society, and within time, a criminal element will probably arise might be a short time or long, might be just out of being criminal, or it might be in response to restrictive rules that are implemented by other people who are seeking for the common good of everybody in that arena. All of the associations and, and, uh, that go on in there are natural for human beings. Even people who have an antisocial nature have a need to respond to, social, to a social situation so that they can get feedback of some sort. Of course, it's over the course of the 10 years, people will strive to institute order, and there are others will be, who will strive to uh, institute chaos, all right? And unless there's a major group of people there who are psychologically disturbed, that group will probably, in time, become a microcosm of what our world is like, all right? By applying the arena situation to the world in which we live, it's easy to see how it is a microcosm. Cultures hang together. Languages develop, they unify people, and then they segregate people at the same time. We congregate with people who share our goals and our intellect and our education and our values. We form groups and clubs because people enjoy belonging to groups. It makes them feel like they are part of something bigger than themselves. And when there's a group, it makes you feel secure. So we love that. 
Look around from the jungles to the metro biggest metropolitan areas of the world, there are social clubs everywhere that people congregate to, all right? Universities have fraternal and sororal uh, associations. Just automatically, you go to college, you, people want you to join a fraternity. There's the Skull and Bones at Yale. Disney has their annual pass holders group. Stock, uh, corporations have stockholders meetings. Scoutings have their eagle nests. The military has, has uh, officers clubs, which separate them from the rest of the world. And tennis players and golfers, they sequester themselves away in high-priced country clubs. The lower classes are no different. If you, they have bowling leagues, they have softball, they have soccer fields that they go to on a Saturday for free. Uh, street gangs even prove the point that people need to collect under a common bond. Organizationally, it's understandable and acceptable as long, as long as the group does not begin to infringe upon the freedom and rights of the people within the group. Okay. Every now and again, someone pops up within a, with a system that is utopian, and they pop up with a system that is presented as the universal answer to happiness or joy or, or freedom. Instead of becoming a choice or an outlet for free socialization, their visionary systems become mandatory. They become a must. You have to do this. Stalin and Castro had communism, Hitler had fascism, Pol Pot had totalitarianism, David Koresh had Waco. Sometimes a comprehensive system has merit and can actually be applied beneficially. If you look at the Geneva Convention, all the world has agreed, all the developed world has agreed to go by the, the Geneva Convention's rules for warfare. That's a good thing. But more often than not, utopian ideals supplied institutionally end up stripping the freedom and liberties of human beings. This is where people start to stand up and object. You hear about Dafur, I think that's how you say it, and there's all kinds of genocide going on. In, is it Dafur? Darfur. Darfur. And there's genocide going on there now. And the world is standing up and saying, we have to stop this. Okay? There's an example of it. Listen. The gauge for viability is not a system's productivity merits. The gauge for viability is inversely related to the human bondage the system creates. Let me say this again. The gauge for a system's viability is not how productive it makes people. The gauge for viability is inversely related to how human bondage, uh, how much human bondage the system purposefully or ignorantly creates. I hope that made sense. Now, often people will defend a system because they've never known better. They grow up in communism, cradle to grave. They support it because it's all they have and it's all they know, and they think it's good. In The God That Failed, a book about communism, there are testimony after testimony of very intelligent people who defend communism to the death and cannot see anything at all wrong with it. Some defend an evil empire because freedom outside of the empire is just too scary for them to face. They are terrified of stepping outside because the free world looks just, just too horrifying to face alone. So they stay within the system. We have even seen some respected people, some personalities, stand up for horrible things out of ignorance because they don't know the facts of it. Jane Fonda stood up for North Vietnam 
saying that, you know, stood there in, in our public view and said how great of a thing it was, and she made a great mistake, which I believe she later apologized for. Malcolm X defended uh, communism, but he turned around when he saw what communism really did and he changed his mind. We, the United States used to support the Taliban and the Afghani Taliban financially until we saw what it was about. When evidence of human bondage becomes apparent, only a lunatic or an uh, indifferent sadist would want it to continue. Or those people who want control. Okay? The people who want control will use a system that will put people into bondage and they'll justify it as being for the common good. I am a Christian. I understand the liberty offered through genuine, biblically sound relationship with God through His Son. Period. Like a refugee from under some despot, I see the spiritual bondage that my LDS brothers and sisters are under in the system of Mormonism that supposedly makes them free. I look back and see them in change and the, the apex of Mormon bondage comes directly from the temple. Okay? Directly from the temple. What makes the temple more sinister than most other systems, most other, is it claims that the answers to get to God are found within it. And you cannot get to God after this life unless you've been inside. Okay? That is diabolical. It is a system of bondage. I have no vested interest but my love for the LDS people to help them break these chains. They can't see it for the, uh, they can't see the forest for the trees. And so I'm trying to help you understand to look back when you first went into the temple and you saw what, what, what went on all around you. I want you to think back to your reaction because that reaction was reason. That reaction was, wait a minute, this is insane. This is nuts. What have I gotten myself into? Now, if there's some of you who go in and you think that it was all normal, well, I, I don't have anything to say to you, except I don't know how because the private conversations I have with most Latter-day Saints is you've got to be kidding me. And it's like an acquired taste. I mean, if you eat cockroaches long enough, you're gonna like them, all right? And you go long enough, pretty soon you'll start to say, well, it seems pretty normal to me, the things we're doing. Let me explain the temple process Mormonism uses to chain their people in a never-ending cycle of servitude. This is probably, in my heart, one of the most serious shows that we've had because it breaks my heart. First, there's a concerted effort to dominate people's minds concerning the temple, and this effort begins at a very early age. Babes as young as two and three years old are shown pictures of the temples. They are taught songs about the temples. Their homes have uh, songs about, uh, have pictures of the temples in them. The prophet tells them to put a picture of the temple in their home. Why would they want a picture of a building in their house for the child to look at constantly? They sing a song, I love to see the temple, I'm going there someday to feel the Holy Spirit, to listen and to pray, for the temple is the house of God, a place of love and beauty. I'll prepare myself while I am young, 
This is my sacred duty. The power, even the mind-numbing effects of sacred duty have been apparent to us by other religious strongholds on people's minds. Children, even babes, are not only influenced through pictures and songs and lessons, but stories are slipped in that are just unbelievable. I got on the internet. This was from a stake, a reference resource material for primary age kids to tell these children this story. This was by the prophet Spencer W. Kimball. I don't usually read stories. I got to read this one. It's two paragraphs. A few years ago, a young couple who lived in northern Utah came to Salt Lake City for their marriage. They did not want to bother with a temple marriage, or perhaps they did not feel worthy. At any rate, they had a civil marriage. After the marriage, they got into their automobile and drove north to their home for a wedding reception. On their way home, they had an accident, and when the wreckage was cleared, there was a dead man and a dead young woman. They wanted to be married. They had been married for only an hour or two. Their marriage was ended. They thought they loved each other. They wanted to live together forever, but they did not live the commandments that would make that possible. So death came in and closed that career. They may have been good young people, I don't know, but they will be angels in heaven if they are. They will not be gods and goddesses and priests and priestesses because they did not fulfill the commandments and do the things that were required at their hands. Sometimes we have people say, oh, someday I'll go to the temple, but I'm not quite ready yet. And if I die, somebody can do the work for me in the temple. And that should be made very clear to all of us. The temples are for the living and for the dead only when the work could not have been done. Do you think that the Lord will be mocked and give this young couple who ignored him, give them the blessings? The Lord has said, for, con for all contracts that are not made unto this end, have an end when men are dead. And he quotes Doctrine and Covenants 132. Second, after you're a child and a teenager, there's an overwhelming compulsion to attend the temple and be temple worthy that grows more and more relentless until uh, and only tapers off once you have relented to go or you just fall from grace of being in the church. This compulsive drive is used by leaders and members alike, and it is the result of doctrine. I'm gonna, there's all kinds of doctrines, but I'm going to give you one very simple doctrine that makes the temple necessary. It's the third article of faith. It says, we believe that all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. That's how you're saved in the LDS church. You have heard them call in on our show. They say, Sean, I'm LDS, but I want you to know that I have a testimony of Jesus. I know that he's my savior and redeemer. He's my Lord. He is this. They use a lot of good words. And all we have to do is ask them a few investigative questions, and we quickly discover that Jesus makes their salvation possible because he atoned for sin, but they are LDS souls that are trapped because they must be obedient to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. The requirements of these laws and ordinances are endless. And here's where the temples come into play. Some of the required ordinances must be completed only from within a temple. You must receive the ordinances in order to be deemed obedient, and you must be obedient to live with God. So to be obedient, you must enter into the temple, and what must you do to get in? You must be worthy. Worthy. Now, how is worthiness determined? It's determined by an interview, 
and we're going to go on about five or ten minutes, a little bit long, but it's important, where each ap applicant is asked a number of pre-selected questions by a bishop and then a stake president, two separate interviews, to be determined worthy to go in the temple. These are the questions they're asked, I'm pretty sure. Do you have faith in and a testimony of God the Eternal Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost? Well, that's a good, good start. Do you have a testimony, and we're going to talk about testimonies next week, of the atonement of Christ and His role as Savior and Redeemer? Do you have a testimony of the restoration of the gospel in these latter days, meaning the Joseph Smith story? You must answer yes to these things. Number four, do you sustain the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as a prophet, seer, and revelator, and as the only person on earth who possesses and is authorized to exercise all priesthood keys? Do you sustain members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators? Do you sustain the other general authorities and local authorities of the church? Yes or no? Do you live the law of chastity? Yes or no? Is there anything in your conduct relating to members of your family that is not in harmony with the teachings of the church? Do you support, affiliate with, or agree, agree with any group or individual whose teachings or practices are contrary to or oppose those accepted by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Control, control, control. Do you strive to keep the covenants you have made to attend your sacrament meeting and other meetings and to keep your life in harmony with the laws and commandments of the gospel? Number nine, are you honest in your dealings with your fellow man? Number ten, are you a full tithe payer? Not a tithe payer, a full tithe payer. Do you keep the word of wisdom? Meaning if you drink a cup of tea, you are not allowed to live with God after this life because you're not allowed to go into the temple because you're not allowed to see him ever because you drink a cup of tea or had a cup of coffee or addicted to cigarettes since you were 16 and you can't stop. You can't live with God. Do you have any financial obligations to a former spouse or children? If yes, are you meeting those obligations? And then if you have a current temple uh, uh, endowment, they ask you, do you keep the covenants you have made in the temple? And you make some very big ones. And then it says, do you wear the garment both day and night as instructed in the endowment and in accordance with the covenants you made in the temple? Do you wear the garments under your clothes both day and night? Has there been any seed, uh, sins or misdeeds in your life that you should have resolved with priesthood authorities that have not been? They're going all the way back to when you were three. And do you consider yourself worthy to enter the Lord's house and participate in temple ordinances? Jesus said, come unto me and I will give you rest. Do, do these questions sound like they are built on someone who can rest in the Lord? Do they sound like somebody who is free to talk with God honestly about their failures, their sinful heart, their proclivities toward evil. Does it sound like you can do that under this system? Jesus died to free every man and woman from religious rites and rituals and obligations. And the temple and the leadership stresses a new system, a new form of religious rites and puts people in the same bondage that the children of Israel were under, under the law and couldn't meet. This, my friends, is the worst kind. Once a person has been found worthy to enter a temple, the third phase of bondage comes by virtue of the contents that are presented inside. And uh, I'm going to tell you that you walk in and everything is clean. Everybody whispers. Almost everybody is smiling. And in this room, the initiate is typically greeted by family or friends, and they meet an escort, and they take you into a room where it looks like a movie theater that has been overdone very nicely with all the finest of materials. 
and your family's sitting there, your parents and your bishop and everybody else, this is your first time through, and you hear a series of recorded messages and then you watch a series of film scenes that teach you about the things they want you to know. Before those film scenes starts, there's a voiceover recording that says, if you do not want to accept under obligation everything that you're going to see here in the temple, please raise your hand. Well, you haven't seen anything yet. And you're sitting there and everybody's looking like, you know, they've been translated to God already. And so you're like, you know, I don't know if I want to do this, but what am I, you want to say, what am I going to do? But you, you can't do it. They just say, do you want to do this or not? And if you don't, there's a, there's a very difficult silence and then they go on. Because I've never seen anybody raise their hand in all the years I've, I've gone. You've been taught your whole life to do this. This is the, the height of religiosity and, and there you go. And uh, then the film begins and there's an actor playing Satan and he goes through and when I went through the temple, he comes in with a Protestant minister. And he says, this man who's in my employ He's going to teach Adam about the, the gospel. So you have Satan teaching, Satan's minister teaching Adam Christian principles. You have Satan's hireling, a Protestant minister, teaching about God without body parts and passions. And who can fill the immensity of space or can live in your heart and they mock that. And you see this and you think, if I ever hear a Christian message, it's of the devil. Completely and totally. It's one of the, the worst things they can do. Later in the ceremony, they, uh, Satan continues to talk. And in the end, for time's sake, because I'm running out of too much time, Satan looks in the camera at everybody. You're sitting there at this, looking at the screen. And he says, if the people in this audience do not live up to everything they have committed to do, they will be in my power. Okay. Is that bondage? You wonder why I get on here and you see something that looks like hatred in my eyes. It's not hatred. It's anger that I have family and I have friends who still believe they have to go and do that stuff in order to go to God. And you think I show anger. I can't imagine what God's, what God's thinking about all this. Fourth way and the final way and the continual way the LDS people keep these people in bondage is the compulsion that they use to keep them going back to the temple. You've gone through once for yourself. Now you go back through for the dead. You go back through for the eons of people who have died, who weren't able to receive the things that they do in the temple. And so you go back and you do the work for the dead. We've got problems on the very street where I'm sitting on right now that we can't fix. And the Mormons have to put on the people who have died salvation on their back too. That's one thing that keeps them going back and back and back to save the dead. Then if they want to watch their son go on a mission, they have to be temple worthy. They have to obey all those 12 questions. And then if they want to see their daughter get married in the temple, they have to be temple worthy. They have to be obeying all those questions. And it becomes a life with a rope around your neck. I'm going to read a simple poem. I don't usually read poems. But I'm going to read a simple poem here. It's called Genealogy, and I want you to hear. This is from a member who wrote the poem, and then we'll go to phones. 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. This is a, phone, uh, a poem called Genealogy by Alice Redden. I dreamed my father called me home across the great divide. 
I was very much bewildered. I thought surely I had died. St. Peter met me at the gate. He said, come follow me. There's something I must show you, something you must see. Then I saw rows of people standing in a line. When I looked them over, they were relatives of mine. Some among the massive crowd I remembered well. Some had lived years before I came to earth to dwell. There were great grandparents who I was glad to see, but when I walked toward them, they turned away from me. Then I saw my cousins, my uncles, and my aunts. They said to me accusingly, we didn't have a chance. To do the work that must be done to start us on our way, to gain for us eternal life, so here we have to stay. My father and my mother, too, were standing apart. They looked so disappointed, it made the teardrops start. I turned and saw my Savior. On his face there was a frown. I died upon the cross for them, and you have let them down. Behold your noble ancestors waiting for the day when you would open up the gates to help them on their way. My heart was very heavy as I looked these people o'er. The blinding tears ran down my face. I turned to him once more. Please, blessed Savior, send me back. I'll make another try. I'll do the work for all my kin. I'm not prepared to die. I will not miss a single one. I'm so ashamed, dear Lord. I'll try to do each ordinance according to thy word. Then I awoke. The dream was gone. I had not passed away. But I made resolutions to start that very day. Baptisms, endowments, and ceilings I found were not a few. The more I searched and searched, the more I found to do. But I will keep on hunting and searching all the while. Next time I meet my ancestors, I'll meet them with a smile. That's bondage, my friends. Look into your heart. See what you thought when you went in. Look at your suspicions. Go to Timothy and it says, don't give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Look at the word and find Jesus as the person who can release you from this trap, the end result, the apex of Mormonism, which they call temples. We are going to Mallory from California on line one. Mallory, you're on Heart of the Matter. Well, hello, Padre. It's my daughter, Mallory. <laughs> it's your daughter, Mallory. How are you? Good. She's not in California. She's in New York. How you doing, babe? New York. I'm good. I see that you have told no one that today is your day of birth. <sighs> today is his birthday. He's 47 years old. I'm 46. And a, oh, whoops, sorry. <laughs> and aside from uh, from looking like quite the babe, uh. <laughs> I wanna I wanna tell you that you're an awesome dad. I could not ask for for anyone better, anyone more honest and open and and more accepting. And I just am so glad that you're mine. And I hope that you had an awesome birthday, Daddy. I'm Thanks. very proud of you and what you're doing. Thanks, Ma. I love you so much. I love you too. You're going to get it for revealing the secret. Uh-huh. I'll see you later. Bye, Dad. Bye. I almost made it. I almost made it. All right. That was Mallory. We have Madison on line two. Madison from Salt Lake City. You're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, hey. Hi. Um, yeah, okay. You know how you're talking about, like, the 12 questions that we followed to get, in, get yeah. into the temple? Yes. Like, um, I don't know. You say, you're saying it's, like a life of bondage, but um, I think what would help is if you were to look at it with um, more of a positive outlook, like those 12 rules. Yeah. Like, hold on, Dad. Um, let's see. Like, it's not really hurting you. Like, 
you're saying it's like a life of bondage, but like, have you ever thought that maybe they're helping? Like, coffee's bad for you anyway. Like, the lady next door, it like ruined her stomach, and she's some old lady, and like, tea's just like loaded with caffeine and like stuff like that. It's just really more of guidelines to help you along through your life. Well, I want you to know, Madison, that most utopian thinkers have rules that they think are going to help society. Hitler was against alcohol. He was against all forms of risque films. He was against anything that, that had any semblance of being unclean. It doesn't make it good because it keeps you in conformity. God wants you to think for yourself and he wants you to choose to do good because you have a relationship with him. Not because an institution has given you guidelines you have to follow in order to be uh, worthy to accept a bunch of rituals to get to him. Does like, that make sense? Yeah, like, I get your point, but, like, also, we also believe that people that never really knew about the gospel or, like, what we teach, yeah. it's not that they're not going to live with God. We believe that there's a spirit world and that you can learn on the other side before you're judged. What are you going to learn, Madison, on the other side, those people who weren't ever taught the Mormon way? What will they learn on the other side? Exactly what God wants you to know. Like, Which is what, though? Tell, tell, tell the audience what they're going to learn. They're going to have the opportunity to hear on the other side. Okay, well, I'm not sure if this is exactly accurate. I'm still pretty young, but you I'm want, still learning. Do you um, want me to tell you so we can cut to it, or do you want to give it a try? Um... They're going to learn the LDS gospel. They're going to be taught what you call the gospel. Yeah. And they're going to have the opportunity to accept the endowments and the rituals that are done in the temple for them. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> so it doesn't matter if you have this beneficial system that people believe is for those who didn't hear about God. God has a better way to uh, help with those people. Did you know that? Did you know the aborigine who never heard of the, uh, the name God, if he looked around him and saw stars and thought, man, that's beautiful, there must be a creator, is going to be saved by the grace of Jesus? Why do, you, why do we need a system where people need to be enslaved to go and do all the stuff when the grace of Jesus brings them into God's presence by virtue of, of his suffering? Because you still need to get it done physically. Like, they'll be on the other side and... You know, they'll learn and they'll be like, oh, okay, I accept, but the work still isn't done because, like, you need to be baptized, like, physically. You need to get those endowments done, so that's why we volunteer to do it for them. Oh, Madison, really, just take some time and just think about what you're saying about the logic behind this. This life is the time to prepare to meet God. If you look at the doctrines of the Book of Mormon, which the Latter-day Saints, it teaches something completely different than this system that you're presenting to us now. It teaches that now's the time to prepare to meet God, and when you die, you face judgment. So, and the Bible is certainly clear on that. It's only later, when Joseph became to let his imagination really go, that you had this development of this thing called an endowment and how to lock people into a system and keep them working for you. I'm sorry, I understand your point. I understand that it's, you think it's oh, beneficial. Give and a I good opinion on it. To a society that has, is a godless society, I guess that the system would be beneficial. But we're not a godless society. We have Jesus who saved us. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thanks for calling, Madison. All right. Okay, <laughs> bye. We're going to Robert, first time caller in Salt Lake City. Robert, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, thank you. Um, I'll turn off my uh, mute. Uh, I mean, my mute is on. So, am I on the air now? You're on the air, Robert. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right. Uh, the green figure aprons that Adam and Eve sewed together to cover their nakedness, and God rejected that. He made them coats of skin. He, he shed the, 
the animals, you know, he killed the animals and made them coats of skin to cover their nakedness. And it's interesting that in the Mormon church, for a sacrament meeting, they use water and leavened bread. And the Lord said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. It was symbolic of sin. And the, the water is, it's, it's not grape juice. It's, it's clear. And the point is, Mormonism doesn't really understand the blood that Christ shed on the cross right. for forgiveness of our sins. It's, Mormonism has no blood, you know. Right. Anyway, whatever that's worth to you. Hey, that's worth a lot, Robert. I really appreciate your comments. Hey, thanks. Have a good night. Thanks. Same to you. We're going to Ginny in South Ogden. First-time caller. Ginny, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, hi, Sean. Hi. Um, this is my first time calling, but um, I've been a Christian for about almost a year now. Oh. And I was LDS, and um, slowly over this last year, um, God has really opened my eyes to show me all the things that um, I used to follow in the LDS church. And I don't know if people have thought about, um, I just, it just hit me the other day that the teachings of who Jesus was, I see him now as, um, in their eyes, he must have failed because he was just a lamb to slaughter. Right. And then also I, I realized I was thinking, gosh, according to the, the Book of Mormon, you read the whole thing, the Nephites, the good guys, they were completely wiped out and destroyed. And I just, you know, realizing who God is now um, and all that he has to offer us now, he, he doesn't let his children fail. And according to that system, they are bound to fail, they are bound to be persecuted and everything like that. It's just a comment that I've uh, really... I don't know. It's been on your heart the other day. Yeah. Yeah. Those things that they'll continue to manifest themselves on your heart and you'll grow. And I, I praise God that you're a Christian and your eyes are open. It is a, it is an event, isn't it? Your eyes do open, don't they? Yes, they do. Yeah. Well, praise God, Jennifer. Thank you so much for calling. Okay. God bless you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We're going to Linda, first time caller in Brigham City on the famous line four. Brent, Linda, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Happy birthday. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I wanted to thank you for reaffirming things that I've been searching for. You talked about um, let no one lead you astray, let no one deceive you. Right. And I was reading in Colossians 2, chapter 18, and I'm reading now the Amplified, but it says, let no one de defraud you by acting as an umpire or declaring you unworthy and disqualifying you for the prize insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he claims he has seen. And I read that a week ago, and I said to my husband, hmm, seems like Joseph Smith. And then you talked about dece deceiving today, and I just thank you very much for helping me along my path. Hey, Linda, what? read that again, uh, that verse again, slowly. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> okay, it says, let no one defraud you by acting as an umpire, or declaring you unworthy and disqualifying you for the prize, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he claims he has seen. Do you want me to finish the verse? Sure. Okay. Vainly puffed up by his sensuous notions and inf inflated by his unspiritual thoughts and freshly conceit. That's just awesome. What's the it is. What's the reference again? It is Colossians, Colossians 2, verse 18, 
and it's from the Amplified Bible. Excellent uh, verse, Linda. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. You're welcome, and thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. We're going to Jennifer, first-time caller from West Jordan. Jennifer, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, I just have a comment. This weekend, my grandmother and I, we got into a conversation about the tithing issue. She, of course, is very religious in the LDS religion. And her being on a very fixed income told me that she would pay $160 a month to go to the temple on a daily basis, if she wants to, to have all the elaborate things that the temple offers to her, all the fixtures and the big building and all that, and that just really struck me as odd, that here she is on a very limited income, having to pay $160 to go to God. Yeah. Well, that's ingenious, isn't it, if you're a corporation? Exactly. Yeah. Yep, and it makes sense. It does. It makes perfect sense. In, In the world system, it makes perfect sense. I'm so sorry she's under that. And it, that is not God's way since the ascension of Jesus Christ. He says, be a cheerful giver. God doesn't need our money. We don't need elaborate buildings. We don't need to sit in comfy seats or any of that. God is, he's, Jesus did it all. We can meet on the living room floor of a hut, and it's just as good as meeting in a nice building. The Mormons have got a lockdown, and it's a corporate, and I, it just breaks my heart. It's something that ve- I'm very sensitive about because I know what it does to them. Yeah. Great call. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. We're going to Alan in South Jordan. Alan, you're in Heart of the Matter. Yes, I've got uh, 20 questions. I'll limit it to one or two. Yes, one or two, Alan. One or two, yes. Um, uh, this is a little off the subject. A couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago maybe, you asked, uh, you mentioned something about uh, Joseph Smith using a handkerchief to heal somebody. No, someone else used his handkerchief, it says in the history of the church. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I wondered... Uh, yeah, they did that in the New Testament, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know about that. Okay. Um, I, I wondered if it was, if you were concerned about Joseph Smith doing something wrong. And, uh, no, he's just plagiarizing what he'd seen done in the New Testament. He's very good at that. But go ahead, Alan. All right. Let's, uh, let's leave that one then. And uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, what you think of Genesis 28, verse 17, which says that the temple is the gate of heaven. Um, I, I, I don't know it. I got to read it in context. I'm not ashamed that I don't know that. I think that the temple was the gate of heaven to the children of Israel. But when Jesus came, the veil was written twain, top to bottom, and it was done for. So I don't understand the point. We're the early Christians. We're the temple now. I don't understand the point, though. Oh, the, the, the point is that it's, it's, uh, the scripture in Genesis says that it's the gate of heaven. Well, for the, for the, I think for the children of Israel, ultimately the temple would be and still will be. They're still going to reestablish their temple on Mount Moriah. But this is a completely different thing. You, do, you can't mean to tell me, Alan, with your intellect and, and, and scholarly abilities and Mormon folklore that you're trying to associate those two things. Are you? Well, I, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, scripture in Isaiah 2 also, which says that this this temple, uh, speaking out of the Old Testament, will be established in the tops of the mountains. And, um, and, you, mean, and you think the mountains are these rocky mountains here in Utah? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I believe so. Uh, you do believe that? Wow. If you read that whole thing in context, I think it is referring to the city of David there, Alan. I can't believe 
I mean, you're a sharp guy. You write me some good emails. This is really far-fetched that you're, you're resorting to this. The, no, the, the, temple, the point is the temples, will, the temples of the Old Testament will be reestablished. No, wait, did you say temples of the Old Testament? There's only one temple, and there's always only been one temple, Alan. What do you mean temples? Well, Here again, you're showing me that, that there's something wrong with your, your doctrinal perspective relative to temples in the Old Testament. Well, the, the uh, Jewish, the Jewish uh, uh, history indicates that they, uh, the, uh, the other temples, uh, there's uh, indications that the... What? Indications? I'm sorry, Alan. There are no indications of other temples, my friend. There's one site, there's one place, there's one temple. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Alan, thanks so much. Thanks for trying. We'll see you later. Thanks for calling. You had five right. questions, by the way. Sorry, I seem a little bit impatient with Alan, but he, he pesters me with very acerbic emails all the time, and so I had to kind of let him know. All right, Laurent, first-time caller, Salt Lake City. Laurent, you're on Heart of the Matter. Thank you. You have to turn your TV off, Laurent. Okay. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. You're on the air. I can't hear you, though. Can you hear me now? Okay, yes, there you are. Y yes, um, happy birthday to you. Thank you, Laura. And I enjoy listening to you so much. This is only the second time. But anyway, I would like to know if anyone can call in. I used to be LDS for 40-some years till I, till I decided to study. Uh-huh. Well, is he talking? <laughs> you, you have to turn that TV off. It is off. Is it? Uh-huh. Well, I'm just listening to you. Okay. Um, shit, I forgot where I was at. Uh, anyway, I was LDS for 40 years till I decided to really read other 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 things. That God, there's anyway, there's a lot of things out there that I read. All my children converted over to uh, uh, Catholicism, but I would like to know if anyone can call in and let me know why on the garments. So, you know, they changed the garments, and they've taken all the Masonic labels off of the garments and I asked my sister-in-law who is very uh, very devout Mormon she, in fact she's 80 something years old she's on a mission in um, Los Angeles and um, she was visiting with me and I asked her and she says she didn't know why they had taken them off but I didn't know they had that's news to me and uh, she didn't know that but also like that other gal was saying that her her mother or grandmother pays a hundred and something dollars a month to yeah well m my um sister-in-law she's on uh, on the uh medicare uh, i mean uh, what they get a month here yeah security yeah she goes she was at the temple here doing work but she couldn't take the weather so she went back to los angeles but you know they have the, the uh, evidently the church owns the, the um apartment buildings and that that they stay in and they have to pay rent oh, yeah. to the mormon church to work for free in the temples i uh, thought what a business it's a business hey uh thank you so much for the call or keep watching but i'd like to know if anyone knows why they took the masonic labels off of the uh, the garment well we'll throw that question out there and have someone give us a call thank you you're wonderful okay see you later we're going to terry uh first time caller terry you're on heart of the matter Terry, you got to turn your television off. Okay. Television you off. <laughs> All right, you're on the air, man. Terry? Yeah, hello. Hi, Terry. You're on the uh, air. Okay, I was just... 
I was just wondering if uh, you heard on the CBS Evening News that uh, they were saying that they were saying that we needed to understand the Mormon Church and the Muslims better. Now, if you ask me, I think this is kind of scary. Yeah, I, I didn't hear that on the CBS Evening News, but uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with understanding them better, but embracing them and accepting them as, as Christians, there I have a problem. Maybe they feel they're misunderstood. The LDS would often have you believe something that is just contrary to what their doctrines are, and they have a public persona that they push out there. There's a lot of P's there. Public persona that they push out there uh, for people to embrace, but it's really not what they, what they believe. What they believe comes down in the temples. So if the LDS church really wants to be understood, have them open the doors to the temples and let the public watch what they do in there, and that will uh, aid in the understanding of the poor Mormon people. All righty. Hey, thanks for the call. Thank you. All right, you take care. Bye-bye. We have two minutes left. Quickly, a question. Do you believe that God made the world in seven days from Roy Wilde in, in Western Australia? No, I think he did it in six days. No, uh, actually, I don't get hung up on the time stuff. There are people who strongly believe that it's uh, a thousand years per day, and there's people who believe it's actual day. I think God could have made the entire world in a minute. Uh, so it's irrelevant in my thinking because I think it divides, causes argument, causes debate, and we should be focusing on how to be Christians out in the world. So I hope that helps you, Roy. And uh, I'm going to see if I can fit this call in. Dennis, first-time caller from Draper, you literally have 45 seconds. Okay, I'll make it quick, and I, I'm not sure if I understood a comment you made earlier. That's why I'm calling. Okay. I understood that you said that even the aborigine who never had a chance to hear of Jesus or God uh, could be saved as long as they somehow acknowledge that there is some type of God or something like that. Is that yeah, read Romans chapter 1. It says they are without excuse because even nature testifies that there is a God. Okay, well, I got to tell you, that's different than uh, a different interpretation than what I heard when I was growing up uh, with my born again friends. They basically said, if you didn't accept Jesus in this life, it was basically TF in the life thereafter. Yeah, don't you love that doctrine? Don't you love when they come out? Yeah, little babies, you know, who die. Yeah, they are gonzo into hell. They're burning. Come on, man. I, I, I've talked to a lot of very knowledgeable, good Christians, and they cleared, cleared that up for me right at the start of my searching for Jesus 10 years ago. Dennis, I got to cut you off, but thank you for the great call. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Listen, pa uh, Pastor in the Oven, this coming Monday, October 8th, 6.30 to, 6 to 8.30 at uh, Brick Oven in Provo, Utah, and tonight at Denny's on 5th South in downtown Salt Lake, Pastor in the Pub. We love you. Next week, another show, and we hope you'll call in and tell us about your experiences here in the Mecca of Mormonism. God bless.